Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Mark Green, the first elected public advocate for New York City and author, who urges Democrats to adopt the campaign slogan, Stop Dangerous Republican Extremists, for this November's critical midterm election. Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a former CIA analyst, who talks about the dangers of the escalating war in Ukraine and urgent need to find a diplomatic solution to end the conflict. And civil rights attorney Ben Crump, who demands accountability for a New Haven, Connecticut black man who was injured and paralyzed while in police custody. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. For a generation, Mexico has waged a war on drug cartels, with the victims being mostly innocent civilians, many of whom have gone missing. In May, Mexico's Register of Missing People, which dates back to 1964, passed 100,000, but the true number is likely far higher. Between 2006 and 2016, Over 2,000 clandestine graves were found in Mexico. The country's forensic services holds 52,000 unidentified bodies, which may or may not belong to the people on the missing list. For a nation not engaged in war, the number of Mexico's missing citizens is staggering. The official number of Mexico's disappeared list is five times longer than that of Sri Lanka, which suffered through a 25-year civil war, and 80 times larger than the number of Chileans who disappeared during the Pinochet dictatorship. The massive number of those missing illustrates how violent Mexico has become over the past 15 years and reveals how violent drug cartels control territory in the country where they can commit murder with impunity. Now, scandal is hampering the process of identifying the missing. Roberto Cabrera, the first commissioner in charge of the search for the disappeared, was sentenced to three years in prison on June 30th. He was convicted of trying to make a $3.5 million secret deal with a biotech company to share confidential genetic information from recovered remains. The judge in the case said Cabrera had helped a company that merchandised the suffering of families who are searching for their loved ones. This spring, Texas activist Jackie Sawicki was skeptical of big promises made by crypto mining executives. Riot Blockchain, a company based in Colorado, announced plans to build the world's largest Bitcoin mining facility in Corsicana, a rural Texas city 60 miles south of Dallas. The 400,000-square-foot facility, the company said, would occupy 265 acres filled with computers. Sawicki was not impressed with a libertarian dream baked into crypto, but was alarmed at the huge amount of electricity and water the facility would consume. She created a Facebook group to organize opposition to the project. Across the globe, Bitcoin mining now consumes as much power annually as the nation of Argentina. As China and Iceland banned crypto, the value of Bitcoin has fallen nearly 60% since January. 
Now, Texas, under Republican Governor Greg Abbott, is vying to become the crypto capital of the world. Today, the U.S. is home to 40% of cryptocurrency mining, with one quarter of it based in Texas. In Riot Blockchain's proposed operation, the facility would pay only 2.5 cents per kilowatt hour for its electricity, a full 10 to 11 cents less than the going residential rate. The deep discount deal requires Riot Blockchain to shut down when the supply of electricity is limited. In his 20s, Wall Street billionaire Jeff Yass and his friends used sophisticated computer programs to try to score big at horse and greyhound racetracks across the country. Four decades later, the firm he and his friends founded, Susquehanna International Group, is a sprawling global company that makes billions of dollars. Yas and his team used their numerical expertise to make rapid-fire computer-driven trades and options and other securities, eventually becoming a giant middleman in the markets. Today, the 63-year-old Yas is one of the richest and most powerful financiers in the country. According to a ProPublica investigation, he's avoided paying over $1 billion in taxes in recent years using sophisticated data-crunching power. Yas paid an average federal income tax rate of just 19%, far below that of comparable Wall Street traders. In recent years, he's spent more than $100 million on election campaigns. The money has been spent on everything from anti-tax advocacy and charter schools to campaigns against so-called critical race theory, as well as support for candidates who seek to ban abortion and falsely claim that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from Donald Trump. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Multiple events over the past year and a half have made it clear that Donald Trump and the Republican Party he leads are enemies of democracy. From Trump's false claim of a stolen election, the violent January 6th insurrection he provoked, to dozens of state voter suppression laws, extreme partisan gerrymandering, and the explicit goal of some GOP candidates to subvert future election results if their party doesn't win, today's Republican Party constitutes a clear and present danger to American democracy. In recent weeks, the House Committee investigating the January 6th assault on the Capitol by Trump supporters and the multi-pronged plot to overturn the 2020 presidential election and install Trump as de facto dictator, committee members have revealed irrefutable evidence of Trump and his inner circle's complicity in crimes against the Constitution. In the July 12th committee hearing, Evidence was presented that Trump directly and indirectly communicated with armed white supremacist terrorist groups, the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, to gather in Washington on January 6th. These groups led others to assault the Capitol to prevent the certification of Joe Biden's victory in the presidential election, while also targeting Vice President Mike Pence and other legislators for capture and possible execution. Your reporter spoke with Mark Green the first elected public advocate for New York City and author, 
who urges Democrats to adopt the campaign slogan, Stop Dangerous Republican Extremists, for this November's critical midterm congressional election. Uh, there is no other term, perhaps maybe authoritarian, a white supremacist, neo-fascist party. Now, uh, there have always been dangerous extremists, uh, the John Burke Society, the Klan, obviously. But they never tried to and got close to running the government. I mean, that is something that if you combine George Wallace and Joe McCarthy, and that person won the presidency. So we are dealing with something, uh, to the best of my experience or knowledge, is clearly the most dangerous domestic moment Certainly since 1860, and the issue now is slavery, uh, perhaps ever, because the issue now, the equivalent issue now is democracy. But the GOP now are, are trying to change the rules so that they're losers who win. The Electoral College plus the gerrymandering plus the money disparity in politics and now plus Numerous states passing voter suppression laws have put the thumb on the scale, so Democrats have to win something like 57 percent of the House vote, the Senate vote, uh, even the presidency by seven points in order to win. So here we are today, and the Republicans, they want to kill majority rule and keep it minority rule for a long time, and that means exploiting a racial divide and stealing elections by voter suppression. And they came close in the year 2020. And now it's an open coup. And we're arriving at a moment where, since we can't rely on the Supreme Court, obviously, a variety of quirks and deaths is now 6-3 for the far right. We can't depend on the mainstream media There are some liberal organizations like yours in the nation. We can't depend on a stymied Senate because of the filibuster. Nothing gets done. It's down to two things. The vote this November on whether Democrats can maintain or expand control of both chambers or Garland, Merrick Garland and the Georgia prosecutor, whether in the face of a mountain of evidence of criminal misconduct, is it too dangerous to indict a former president because you, you have established that possible precedent? Or is it more dangerous not to indict him? Because that then gives license to future despots, future Trumps and current proud boy type people who think, oh, I can get away with it. So. This is a moment, a four-month, five-month moment of extraordinary peril, probably, in, in our national history. You know, Democrats have been roundly criticized for not aggressively responding to the Republican threat to democracy and don't seem prepared right now to raise this threat in the upcoming 2022 midterm election campaign. In your article, you talk about the necessity for the Democrats not only to emphasize the positive results of Biden's presidency thus far, but to speak very boldly and loudly about the threat that the Republicans present to democracy and civil society. The article had the headline, let's call them dangerous extremists. After Judge Ludick, the conservative circuit court judge, said in his testimony under oath to the House January 6th committee, the Republican Party, his party, 
presents a clear and present danger to America. I thought, okay, they can call us extremists. We can call them extremists. And, you know, I have an opinion about that. But they make believe that AOC or someone is somehow as extreme as uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. But we can call them accurately and memorably. They're dangerous extremists. And so every time uh, there's another law that suppresses the vote, every time a white supremacist, like in Buffalo or Rob Elementary, uh, commits violence, uh, every time the MAGA mob harasses and threatens local officials, we can say, you see, they are dangerous extremists. Over time, people will believe that Trump, twice impeached, deplatformed, about to be ideally indicted, no one would believe that Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi are dangerous extremists. It's a 60-40 issue that the public will think, well— they all lie, uh, but the Republicans are a menace, and the uh, 1-6 hearings have been way overperforming and brilliant about calmly prosecuting the case that they are dangerous extremists, and we have visual evidence on January 6th, and criminal evidence that's slowly coming out, ideally, that will be prosecuted. Because if we don't prosecute this, there'll be more of it. That was Mark Green, the first elected public advocate for New York City and author. Find a link to his recent Nation magazine article titled The Democrats Have a Winning Message, Stop Dangerous Extremists, and related articles by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. As Russia's war in Ukraine nears five months since the February invasion, there's little sign of an end to the conflict. The Biden administration recently announced it will provide Ukraine with more sophisticated weaponry, including four additional high-mobility artillery rocket systems, as well as ammunition, spare parts, and other equipment valued at $400 million. This, the 15th such aid package, brings U.S. total assistance since the start of the war to more than $7 billion. During the early July meeting of the G20 nations in Indonesia, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken declined a direct meeting with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and instead accused Russia of triggering a global food crisis, demanding Moscow allow grain shipments out of war-battered Ukraine. Lavrov responded by walking out of the summit early, denying that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was responsible for the global hunger crisis. He declared that if the West doesn't want talks to take place, but wishes Ukraine to defeat Russia on the battlefield, because both views have been expressed, then perhaps there is nothing to talk about with the West. Your reporter spoke with Mel Goodman, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a former CIA analyst. Here he talks about the dangers of the escalating war in Ukraine, an urgent need to work toward a diplomatic solution to end the conflict. There's a certain sameness about uh, these days. The Russians continue to make incremental advances, uh, very small advances, but extremely costly for Ukraine, for its people, for its infrastructure, for its, uh, its villages, its towns. Uh, the Russians are busy fast-tracking citizenship to Ukrainians living in eastern Ukraine in the Donetsk 
and they show no sign of uh, backing down. And at the same time, uh, Zelensky still feels he's winning and can win the war, and you have too many American officials who are at least agreeing with that publicly. I don't know what they genuinely believe. I can't believe they think that um, Ukraine can actually win this war and, and take back significant amounts of territory uh, as well. Um, the, the nuclear background is something that's always concerned me uh, because the Soviets fought a war, a losing war in Afghanistan, and never raised the issue of nuclear weapons. We fought losing wars in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and the idea of nuclear weapons never came up. Uh, Putin raises it uh, as a threat from time to time. Uh, we seem to believe he wouldn't do it, uh, but who knows what Putin will do when his back is against the wall, given the fact that he's already conducted the war with such brutality and senselessness uh, that it's hard to say what he'll do. And unlike Khrushchev, who had to face a, a Politburo in the wake of the disastrous decision to put missiles in Cuba, uh, Putin faces no possible counter, let alone opposition, and no one who's probably arguing a different point of view. Uh, and when you mentioned the G20 meeting, I, I just think it's wrong for Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who doesn't really impress me. In fact, you wonder, where has the State Department been during the Biden administration? What is the role of diplomacy? Are we still active in the diplomatic uh, arena? Uh, he went out of his way to make it clear that he had nothing to say to Lavrov, and there was no point uh, in meeting with him. You know, Lavrov is the foreign minister, but he, he's not uh, a power center in the in the Moscow arena, but he is a, a voice that probably could reach Putin uh, on some level. Uh, and the lines of communication, I think, need to be kept open. There has been some concern expressed about how the Biden administration is fighting this war in Ukraine and what its goals are. And we had Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin say a couple of months ago that the Biden administration's goal was to, number one, degrade Russia's military capacity and their economy. If that's still in play, Mel, what's the danger of that goal, if, if that is indeed what the priority is of this administration when it comes to the conflict in Ukraine? Well, I still think there are a lot of people in the administration who believe that, um, and if they had their druthers would say it, but Austin was called on the carpet uh, for saying it. So I think what Austin was saying was uh, sort of conventional wisdom within the military. Don't allow Russia to come out of this war with the ability to fight another war in any area. In other words, Russia will not even be in a position to defend itself. And Russia is a country that is... Uh, surrounded by adversarial interests. This is part of Russian self-belief about their own history and their own national security situation. To me, we're playing right into Russia's beliefs about itself uh, and the threat to national security that the United States represents by expanding NATO, by creating a military headquarters, meaning permanent forces now will be in Poland, by increasing the number of naval combatants in road to Spain, by increasing the squadrons of F-35s uh, in England, Sweden and Finland coming into NATO. Uh, how long is this Ukraine war going to last? What are the implications now? You mentioned food. We could add energy to uh, that list because I'm seeing signs of war fatigue in Europe 
uh, and I certainly think we're going to see more signs uh, in the coming winter uh, as gas and oil deliveries get interrupted, and the German economy has some real problems with not fulfilling its energy needs. So there's more uh, unwinding that can uh, take place. None of it is good. None of it is healthy. And at the same time we're doing this, we're going out of our way to antagonize both Russia and China. Uh, And now the Pentagon and their military appropriations that they send up to the Hill are talking about the need to fund a two-front war. (laughs) Do they really believe they can take on Russia and China at the same time? That was Mel Goodman a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, former CIA analyst and author. Find a link to Goodman's recent articles on Ukraine and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On June 19th, New Haven, Connecticut police arrested 36-year-old Randy Cox for possession of a weapon and took him into custody without incident. He was handcuffed and placed alone in the back of a police transport van without fastening his seatbelt. When the driver made a sudden stop, Cox fell to the floor and was slammed headfirst into the side of the van. He's currently hospitalized, paralyzed from the chest down on a ventilator and feeding tube. The video from inside the van, and that taken by police before Cox was transported to the hospital, went viral across the country when it was released by Cox's attorney, Ben Crump, who has represented the family of George Floyd and many other high-profile cases involving police abuse against black people. Crump and local lawyers representing Cox, who say they intend to sue the city, Maintain the video shows officers mocking Cox for being unable to sit up after he was injured. All five police officers involved in the incident have now been placed on paid administrative leave. At a march and rally on July 8th, New Haven residents gathered to express their outrage and called for accountability. At an earlier press conference, Crump demanded the same. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhus attended the press event and presents this excerpt of Crump's statement. I came here today after his family reached out to me and I got a chance to talk to these great lawyers here in Connecticut who are going to join us not only in making the case here in New Haven, not just here in Connecticut, but making the case for Randy Cox all across America. Because right now, all America is waking up and watching that video. Last night, we put the video out on social media, and by the time we woke up this morning, a million people had watched the horrific video, and they had over 10,000 comments, pretty much all the same, saying, this is shocking, this is horrific, this is unacceptable. This is inhumane. We are better than this, New Haven. We are better than this, America. How many more times do we have to see black people brutalized at the hands 
of the people who are supposed to protect and serve them. I am here because when I look at that video, it shocks my conscience. And I believe when you all see the video, it's gonna shock your conscience. The only question is, why wouldn't the police look at Randy Cox saying I can't move? Why doesn't it shock their conscience? Why when he said I can't move my arms, I can't move, that they didn't use their training. They didn't use their professionalism. They didn't use the policies that they all supposed to know. Why didn't they use just an ounce, just an ounce of humanity? We have to say humanity is in all of us. No matter if our skin is black, white, brown, or red. I thought about Freddie Gray. I mean, it is tragically similar to Freddie Gray. This is Freddie Gray case on video. Thank God we got the video so they can't deny what happened. They can't deny that they had a man handcuffed and put him in the back of this paddy wagon inappropriately and drove, he, he may have been using a cell phone. I mean, all the things we don't want people to do when you are trying to have somebody not only in your custody, but in your care. And if we learned anything from the George Floyd trial, that when you have a citizen in your custody, you have them in your care. And so I don't know what it's gonna take for police officers around America to start believing marginalized people of color, especially black people, when we say that you are brutalizing us. Why didn't they believe George Floyd when he said, I can't breathe 28 times? Why didn't they believe Eric Gardner when he said, I can't breathe 19 times? And why didn't the New Haven police officers believe Randy Cox when he said, I can't move. Why did they mock him? Why did they say, you're not even trying? Why didn't they follow the policies? He called it in, said, citizen, said he fell in the back of the wagon, said he couldn't move, but yet he didn't follow the policy of waiting on the EMS to get there to see about this person who obviously you knew were in some type of distress. I mean, you heard the thump when his head hit that wall in that van. It was obvious that this was serious. That was attorney Ben Crump speaking at a press conference in New Haven after his client, Randy Cox, suffered serious injuries and paralysis during his arrest by police. Find links to video recordings of Cox's arrest and related coverage by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.com. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, 
please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KPSQ in Fayetteville, Arkansas, FRSC in Santa Cruz, California, KMXT in Kodiak, Alaska, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.